the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. I hope our time together helps you thrive in life and leadership. Excited to sit down with Jordan Montgomery on this episode. And we are going to talk about the pitfalls of success in your 20s. I know we have a ton of young leaders listening to this show. Uh, You might want to share this one with your friends and open your notebook. Jordan has a lot of good things to say. And then being underdeveloped and overexposed. I'm so glad we went there. And then public speaking tips for different generations. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Overflow. What if every dollar donated to your church could go further toward your mission? Overflow offers the lowest cash processing fees in the industry. Go to overflow.co slash carry. That's overflow.co, not .com slash carry. And if you're like a lot of leaders, you know how tricky it can be to get volunteers. Check out servehq.com church to learn more and get your volunteer problem solved. Well, Jordan Montgomery is the owner of Montgomery Companies. He's a highly regarded performance coach and keynote speaker, and his clients include business executives, sales organizations, and entrepreneurs. So he still headquarters at a small town, Iowa, and uh, that's a good good word for all of us. I mean, I headquarter out of Oro Medanti. You've never heard of that. That's why I always say Toronto. It's about an hour north of Toronto, and I'm in my basement. You can do almost anything from anywhere right now, which is awesome, but Jordan travels from Iowa around the country speaking and also coaching executives at Fortune 500 companies, as well as pro athletes. He's also an accomplished business leader who has managed top performing sales teams in the financial services industry. We talk about that a little bit as well. So I think you're going to really enjoy this. And hey, if you're a young leader listening to the show, give us a shout out. Hit us up on Instagram or wherever you get your socials. I'm Carrie Newhoff or C. Newhoff on most channels. We'd love to hear from you and make sure you share this episode with a friend. So we've all heard that when it comes to experience with giving software, there are frustrations. Frustrations of needing to call support or get a message through to the help desk line and nobody actually mans those things. Processing fees are too high. Not being able to get the data you need in all the places that you want. Well, if you've struggled with any of that, Overflow is the solution you've been looking for. They are the most powerful giving platform that help churches accept stock, crypto, and now cash donations in one solution. You probably heard me talk about uh, crypto and stock, uh, but hey, they now do cash. So with their secure platform and expert support, you'll be paired with a specialist. Overflow will help you unlock even more ways to give. They also have the lowest cash processing fees in the industry, which means every dollar now goes further toward your mission. Best part, super easy integration, and a lot of savings. So you can learn more. Just go to overflow.co slash carry. That's overflow.co, not.com.co slash carry. And every church leader knows that having trained and engaged volunteers is essential, and so many of you are struggling with that right now. And part of the struggle is it can be really tricky to onboard people once you have them. And if you don't do it right, guess what? They leave. So what if there was a resource that made all of that easier? Well, you got to check out ServeHQ. ServeHQ has simple video training courses that help you equip volunteers and develop leaders. You can create your own training if you like to do that. Or if you're like, I'm overwhelmed, they got a whole video library. You can even automate next steps to onboard new people. That means people who volunteer tend to stick around. Their easy-to-use automation tools make onboarding new volunteers and church members as well fast, easy, and consistent. 
If you haven't done it yet, check it out. Go to servehq.church. That's servehq.church. And now my conversation with Jordan Montgomery. Also, uh, I don't know. I think a lot of people had it this winter. I was at the height of being sick. I came so close to canceling this episode. I rarely do that. But if you hear a little bit of coughing in the background, yeah, hopefully we edited that out. But man, I remember I was like, poo, not in good shape. But hey, we got the interview done. It's a great interview and feeling so much better now. Enjoy. Jordan, welcome to the podcast. Carrie, thank you so much for having me. Good to be with you. Yeah, so I love talking to younger leaders. And um, one of the experiences you had early in life is starting out becoming somewhat successful, and then having it all kind of crumble, which I know has happened to a lot of people. And then you built it back up. Can you can you walk us through what happened, like in that origin story, what, what took place, Jordan? Yeah, and I'll provide a little bit of context and background as well, Carrie. But um, I was 27 years old. I had had a five-year run post-college working at a major financial firm. So this is a Fortune 100 company, um, I was appointed as a leader inside that company. I was actually the youngest in my position inside the entire company. So wow. it was a bit of um, hard work meets opportunity. But what had happened to me in that five-year run, Carrie, is my work really became my life. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, my heart got really wound up and entangled in achievement and success and recognition and the praise of people and without even really knowing it, it it soon became my idol. I mean, it was the thing that I was really living for. Um, I was working 12 to 14 hour days uh, every day, didn't really take days off. Mm-hmm. And it just consumed me. So I'm running really hard. I'm moving really fast. And on April 1st, uh, 2015, everything changed. Um, I got a call from my supervisor and he said, I need to see you today. And uh, I remember I was so naive. I thought, you know, um, I don't have time for that. <laughs> I've got, oh. I got people to see, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to have to do this on a, on a, on a different day. And yeah. uh, he said, well, it's one of those meetings where you clear your calendar. And I thought, oh boy, this is going to be a, a serious conversation. So several hours later, I walked into his office and this is what he told me. He said, um, you haven't been malicious or intentional, but you've been careless and casual. And when you're casual, you create casualties. And today is going to be the last day for you at our firm. So I'll tell you how this thing unfolds here in just a second. But again, for some additional context, uh, I was flying to a new city every week to teach and train. My work inside that company had become quite extensive. I was scheduled to be our closing speaker at a major conference with 15,000 people. I was building a large house with a total lack of wisdom as a young single person. And I was involved in a bunch of real estate projects, all of which were about to go sideways as a result of my employment status. So I wasn't just about to lose my job. I was about to lose all of my money. I was about to lose most of all of my influence. And my reputation was about to also be severely damaged. And, um, In about a 15-minute conversation with my then supervisor, I find out it's my last day. But to paint a a bit more of a picture, I was just one of those guys, Carrie. I was underdeveloped and overexposed. Uh Uh-huh. You know, I was out front. I was communicating. I was leading. I was teaching. I was training. But behind the scenes, my backstage life really wasn't developed. Um, 
I knew my goals, but I really didn't know my values. And there's that old adage, you know, if you are clear about your val- you're clear about your goals, but not your values, your goals can take you to a place you never intended to go. And so I just kind of woke up in this world that I didn't really understand. Um, and my work had become my life. And I think God had said enough, you know? And so um, I'll tell you real quick, I, I had a, a, an assistant take a test on my behalf and I didn't ah, report it. There you go. Okay. That was the infraction. Yeah. And so you, were, um, you were supposed to have done the test. What was it? A real estate test or? A, it was a what? continuing education test, just a financial services, you know, kind of a 20 question, multiple choice test. And in my pursuit, in my speed, she was trying to be helpful. And so she just decided to step in and take that test. And um, which can happen. That's an infraction. And when I found out about it, I didn't report it like I should have. And so. So she did it without your knowledge, but once you knew, you didn't, you didn't remediate. That's right. Yeah. I just didn't do the right thing. And it was a lack of character, lack of integrity. Um, Somebody could look at that and say, well, that's a, that's a small infraction and a large price to pay. And maybe that's true, but I think, you know, the Bible tells us we have to be faithful with a little. And the truth is there was a lot in that season of my life, Carrie, that I was, I was not being faithful in. Um, so many decisions that I was making to stay out late at night to... I was going to say, to the uh, extent you're comfortable, like what? Because I think I, I want to get yeah. down on early success. I want to talk about that because I think there's a lot there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, alcohol was an issue at that time in my life. I had no problem, you know, going out two, three nights a week. Um, nothing major, like, you know wasn't like drugs were involved. Um, it wasn't like I had serious relationship issues. It was just, I was living for the party. I was living for the high of success and money and achievement and status. And if you've seen the movie Wolf of Wall Street, it was probably a little bit like Wolf of Wall Street minus the drugs, right. minus the criminal activity. You know, there was none of that, yeah. but it was just that, that, so, that sort of aura of, I want to win and I want to win so bad that I'll do, you know, kind of whatever it takes. And I think God said, I created you for more than that. I want to save you from this. And um, by God's grace, he saved me. And then the story ends in this really cool way that as I write this next chapter of my life, which I'm sure we'll get to, but, but yeah, that was a, that was a tough season. What, what, what was under that drive? Like when you look back at it now, what, what drove you? It was really simple. I think it was the praise of people. I think I wanted validation more than anything, I, I wanted somebody to say, wow, you know, he's, he's impressive. And I hate admitting that now, like that sounds so ugly, but it's, it's true. That was the sin in my life. And, you know, there's that adage that if you live for the praise of man, you'll die by the criticism of man. Yeah. And so what rocked me from the inside out was that I um, had been living for the praise. And so because all of a sudden I didn't have it, and it was, in fact, it was the opposite. It was judgment. It was the rumor mill. It was the significant fall from grace, the criticism just crushed me. Uh, But that was the sin in my life. I really wanted the approval of people. You know, it's something I've been thinking about a lot, the the phrase you used, underdeveloped and overexposed. And I think that's a real challenge. So this happened to you, what, 10 years ago or so? Or It's 27. This was, uh, yeah, almost nine years ago. Yeah. Nine years ago. All right. So there was social media, but it wasn't quite, what it is now, right? And, That's right. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I get questions all the time from young leaders who are like, man, I want to build a platform and how do you get a platform and all that stuff. But I think there's an inherent danger in being, as you say, overexposed. Let's say it really does mm. blow up, but you're underdeveloped. How mm. do you know, like if there's young, there's a lot of young leaders listening to the show. How would you know you're really close to that precipice, that moment when the whole thing starts to crumble? I think it happens through discipleship and mentoring. You know, I, in other words, I wasn't asking enough questions. I didn't have enough accountability. I wasn't being discipled. I wasn't being mentored. I look back and I go, wow, there should have been way tighter guardrails. Like I needed way tighter guardrails. I love what our friend Craig Rochelle says. He says, why would you resist a temptation tomorrow that you could resist today? And I know in Craig's life, just to pick on Craig a little bit in a positive way, Craig has some really, really tight guardrails. He was joking with me the other day. He said, I, I can't um, research hot air balloons, you know, because it has the word hot. Uh, he said, you know, there's, you there's people that look at my text messages and look at my emails and somebody might look at that and go, wow, that's crazy. I would never want to live. That's crazy. And I think Craig might say this. He didn't say this, but I think Craig might say, listen, if you want to have crazy impact, you have to have some crazy guardrails. And I just didn't have guardrails. So if you're a young leader and you think you're bumping up, I just, I would just suggest get some accountability, you know, get, get a mentor, make sure you're being discipled, make sure you're in God's word. Um, you got to have some people in your life that are willing to ask you the tough questions and they're giving you real and honest feedback. Was some of it the chase though? No question. Yeah. No question. And how so? You know, I never um, had money growing up. I, I came from kind of a blue collar background. So I didn't really understand. I, I really had no context, no relationship with money. And so I think for me, um, when I came into it, it was, it was like this brand new thing. And I didn't understand. So here's the irony of it all, Carrie. And this is, this is what's going to sound so ugly and rotten. I was a financial advisor who was making a bunch of money at a really young age who had an awful relationship with money. Oh, I don't think you're alone in that. Go and on. Yeah, I just, it just, it, it just consumed me, you know? And, and that's what the scripture says. The love of money is the root of all evil. I, I let it consume me. I didn't have guardrails. The chase was I wanted to build my kingdom. Yeah. That was really it. And you're involved uh, in some real estate deals. You're building a dream home. Yeah, yeah. And so I start to realize, okay, I'm going to lose the home, the real estate deals all went sideways. And then for about a 30 day period, I didn't know what I was going to do next. I, I had been terminated from this company, but I had, um, I had hopes that they might take me back. And they eventually did. After about 30 days, they sort of did an investigation. They said, Hey, we're going to give this guy a second chance. It wasn't really that big of an infraction. He can still work here. Yeah, I was going to say that that's fairly, I don't want to say it was draconian. I mean, that was an ethical breach, but I can see it going like as a warning almost because yeah. you didn't disclose rather than that you knew and facilitated it. But I mean, good on them for having a super tight ethical standard. It, they did. And you know what? Good on, good on my leader that he came down on me that way. Because I yeah. think what he really saw was a young man who didn't have the right type of character. Like my character wasn't keeping pace with my influence. 
So at the time, full disclosure, Carrie, I thought it was horribly unfair. I mean, I was complaining every day. I was venting. I was, you know, I look back now and I go, maybe he wasn't that bad of a guy. I mean, I, maybe I would have made the exact same decision and it worked for my good. So the home office takes me back. They give me my contract. This guy by the name of Tim Bohannon enters my life. He says, hey, you can come work with me, but this is how this is going to work. I want you to build your character and I want you to put your life back together. And so there's going to be no speaking, no coaching, no teaching, no influencing. You're going to sit in a corner office. I'll give you a staff person and you're going to rebuild this business. And it was a, it was truly a desert season. Like uh. I moved to a new city where I didn't know anyone. I'm rebuilding this business where it's a hundred percent commission. You know, you're making cold calls. I had had success and influence. Now I have really none of it. You know, my ego is so bruised and damaged, but I always remind people, I think God does his best work in the desert. Mm. He did for me. Like I experienced the Lord in that season in such a real way. Um, I remember going to my closet at night and I would dig into my Bible and I just cry, just weep. Um, and I talked to God. And for the first time in a long time, I started to spend time with the Lord, started to lean in with my family and about 18 months through that desert season, I met this gal named Ashley, and she had two kids from a previous marriage. Their names are Audrey and Claire. Today, our two oldest of our four children um, are Audrey and Claire. Gotcha. So, you know, God was preparing me to be a husband, to be a father. And I think he knew, like, before I do something with you, I got to do something in you. And there's too much pride and ego for you to lead a family. I'm not saying he caused it, but I think he allowed it. And through that process, I think he prepared me to lead in the home, which is my most important leadership role. Yeah. So, you know, one of those things when I was in my twenties, I was in law in downtown Toronto just for a year. And, you know, I didn't have the career to climb because I knew I was leaving, but I watched people and I saw them making boatloads of money and being miserable and kind of realizing, oh, I've seen the top and the top is empty. But you don't really know that until you get there. And I think I easily could have had that story. And even now, you know, with the kind of, you know, audience, et cetera, that we have in what we do now, I think if I had that in my twenties, I don't know whether I would have been able to withstand it. Like, you know, you, you, you build up, I burned out 17 years ago, blah, blah, blah. You know, that taught me a lot. You, you've had some corrections in your life to, I remember a mentor of mine, Jordan said to me, God is going to use you, but before he uses you, he's going to break you. And I spent years trying to think like, okay, you have a little fender bender is like, is this the breaking? Am I broken now? Or, you know, and, and then I think the breaking was, was the burnout that just crushed me. It crushed me. And, and now I give thanks for it. But yeah, that time I thought it was yeah. the worst thing ever. But for someone who hasn't had a breaking, what advice would you give them? What warning signs, like if you were advising your 25 year old self, if that happened when you were 27, you look back now at 25-year-old Jordan, what would you say, dude, pay attention. Do you not see this? Like what, what are the warning signs? I think the warning signs, you know, what, what, what I would go back and tell my 25-year-old self, um, and this is going to sound so elementary and so foundational, Carrie, but you know that old adage about staying connected to the vine? Mm-hmm. I just, I just wasn't, and I know there's some people listening and maybe you're thinking, what does that mean? And, and if you're not a person of faith, I, um, I'll just say this. I, I think, I think Jesus is the source of hope. I think he's the source of joy. 
Um, I think he's a source of power. And um, I just wasn't connected to him. And so if you're, if you're living in such a way right now where you feel like you're being pulled from your faith, or maybe you haven't read your Bible in forever, maybe you don't have an active prayer life, or maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, I don't even know this, this Jesus character. You know, I just want to encourage you that you might not know Jesus, but he knows you and he wants to have a relationship with you. And, um, the warning sign for me should have been, you know, I wasn't opening my Bible. I didn't have an active prayer life. I wasn't being discipled. I wasn't being mentored. Um, even if nothing bad is happening, that's a warning. Yeah. Especially if you know the father. Now, if you don't know him, you're thinking, well, I've never done those things before. But if, but if, if you've done those things before and then you stop doing them, um, it probably means you're heading in a direction that isn't super healthy. Would anything you would add to that, Carrie? Well, no, I, 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 I want to ask some questions. What, what was so intoxicating about success? Oh, I mean, I think, you know, you want people to, you want people to respect what you've accomplished. You know, you want um, people to, to, yeah, I think for me, I, I wanted the admiration, adoration of people. And, and I think the problem with it is it's addicting in a way, you know, pride is such a crazy, unique sin because you can't really see it. You can't really identify. John Maxwell said something. This was so helpful to me. He told me this. He said, Jordan, just remember that when people are praising you, they're not really praising you. They're praising the gift inside of you. So for example, when you speak and you're, you're standing on stage and you get the standing ovation from a crowd you barely know, you know, it feels good, doesn't it? And I said, yeah, it does feel good. He said, well, just don't forget, they have no idea who you really are. They don't know you. There's no relationship. They're not admiring you. They can't admire you. They don't even know you. What they're admiring is the gift inside of you. Um, they're admiring the God-given giftedness, the thing that God planted in you that was yours to steward and manage. But remember, God gives and he takes away. Um, I think what's intoxicating, Carrie, is I made, I made it about me instead of the gift that God gave me. And I was building my kingdom. And, um, but at, 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 in its plainest form, it was the adoration and admiration of people. And to answer your question, I would say for me, it was uh, find out what's driving you. Like there's something under that drive to get bigger, yeah, be acknowledged, good. all that stuff. Like once I, once I was able to put my finger on that, um, I was able to untangle the threads in a way that, that really helped. And it's still a, you know, semi-regular check for me. I've got to check my motives even at this stage of my life to make sure that they're, they're pure. What was, what was the easiest part to recover from after you got let go? And then I'm going to ask you, what was the hardest part? Easiest part to recover from was really simple. Um, it was, it was time with the Lord. Um, had a pastor friend say, uh, my greatest role, my, my, one of my favorite roles in life is, is being Papa to my grandbabies. I love being Papa. And he said, you know, one of my, one of my favorite things to do is, is to sit with my grandkids. I love when they crawl up in my lap and they, and they look at me and they call me Papa and they'll just sit with me. And he said, I think, I think God's a bit like that. I think God just wants us to sit with them. You know, he just wants us to crawl up in his lap and say, I'm with you, Papa, you know, I'm with you, Father. And so for me, the easiest thing to recover was, was my belief in the Lord, my time with the Lord. Um, 
I think sometimes he has to rid us of certain things too. You know, like there was so much stuff in my life, so many people and so many activities. There was like this forced slowdown. And so for me, I got back some contentment and some peace. Even though I was broken, there was, there was peace in the brokenness. And it was, it was, it was time with Jesus. I, I got a lot of that back. Yeah. What was the hardest part of the recovery? Um, the, the not knowing, you know, the, the unknown. I, I didn't know how my life was going to um, continue to move forward. And I remember thinking, um, okay, God, you took away this professional thing so that you can then put together this other professional thing. I think sometimes we want God to deal with us that way, right? Like you, you took away this thing in my life and my profession, and now I, I need it to be restored in the same way. Um, God didn't do that, at least not right away. Um, what he did do is he reconnected some other veins. He did some heart surgery. And then I think prepared me to be a father and a husband. But I think just the, the, the unknown, no idea. I'm in a new city, no idea where my life is going to go. That part of it was, was really difficult. What, what are you using to check your motives today? How has that apparatus changed? Boy, uh, it's people. You know, a lot of it's people. It's a guy by the name of Dale Mulliken, who's a dear friend and elder at our church who disciples me. Um, it's some strong accountability from some peers and very close friends that ask intentional questions, the hard, the really hard questions. Um, so, and, and, you know, it's, um, my wife and I do marriage coaching, uh, on a regular basis. Um, where you get coached or you offer it? Where we get coached. Yeah. We're okay, the ones getting coached. Got it. And not because something's wrong. Like I tell people that like, yeah, we're getting marriage coaching and people look at us like, well, are you guys good or everything? Okay. I say, yeah, like actually, you know, it's not perfect, but it's great. Like we only think we have a really healthy marriage. Um, we get coaching for every other area of our lives, for our fitness and our finances and our, you know, our work. Um, we got to get coaching for our marriage because it's sacred. So those are some of the checks and balances. Um, but, uh, you know, I, of course you could always tighten that up. There probably could be more, but those things have been a, a, a major help and, you know, keep it on the straight and narrow. What about the internal checks? Those are all external. Like what is the the filter that you use inside of you? Because in many yeah. ways you're doing the same thing. You're speaking to people, you're coaching leaders, you've started the Montgomery companies, you know, the whole deal. So it's it's almost you're kind of doing the same thing. So I guess the question is what is what is what different? What is different? What is yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I really do think it gets back to time time with Jesus, you know. It's it's the it's the close intimate personal relationship with the Lord. It's a prayer walk that I do daily. Um, it's time in the word. You know, I really didn't, I just confess this, Carrie. In my earlier years, I would have said, I believe in, I believe in the Lord, believe in Jesus, know him. And there's a difference that we all know of knowing him and walking with him. So I knew him, but I wasn't walking with him. I wasn't in his word daily. I didn't really know his word. I didn't understand it. And my, my prayer life certainly wasn't active. So I think, the, I think, the Holy Spirit has been moving in my life. I think I've experienced his grace in a, in a real way, just spending, spending time with him, you know? Um, but I don't have like a series of questions that I ask per se, or a checklist that I go through. Maybe I should, but, but I have felt. No, no, that's fair. Closer to him, you know, much closer to him in this season. Great. Um, tell me about self-awareness and authenticity. They're big leadership topics these days. What are you learning about those two areas? They seem to come up almost everywhere. 
I want to give John Maxwell a, a little plug here. He wrote a new book called The Self-Aware Leader. Uh-huh. Now, John is a friend of yours. And in his book, he says, um, the first lesson I learned in coaching people is that people have a very difficult time seeing themselves realistically and a very easy time seeing everyone else. In other words, they can point out, I can point out everybody else's blind spots, Mm -hmm. but I struggle to assess my own. And in the same way, I can assess everybody else's gifts, but oftentimes assess, uh, have difficulty assessing my own. And so what we're learning with a lot of the leaders that we coach with and work with is that um, even in their wisdom, even in their experience, there's still a lack of awareness only because there's a lack of intentionality. Um, I don't think we become more self-aware on our own. Sometimes we do. You know, we have experiences in life that help us with our awareness. But I think a lot of our awareness is a result of intentional feedback, it's coaching, it's tools, it's systems. And the reality of awareness is it's, it's the beginning of growth and development. I mean, if if we're on a journey of leadership development or personal development, I think we have to become aware. If we want to be better in the future, you have to become more aware in the present. So you coach people on self-awareness? Yeah. Well, we, we coach a lot of leaders really in the, in the areas of soft skills. And okay. so, so self-awareness is naturally a part of that. So somebody comes to us and says, hey, I really want to be a better communicator. Okay, well, that's going to start with increased awareness. Um, or I really want to take more initiative. All right, well, in order to take more initiative, that starts with awareness. I want to be better at asking questions. Well, to be a better question asker, we have to have more awareness. So, so we do. We re- recommend a few exercises. These are all foundational things that most leaders would agree are important but aren't doing enough of. So one would be just the art of getting more feedback, um, asking for feedback, craving feedback, um, just making that a, a really intentional priority in, in, in our lives. Um, this one sounds funny, but we recommend this to all leaders that they record their communication. You and I do this because we podcast and, and we speak. The average executive leader, or even call it salesperson, hardly ever records their communication. So you think about like an athlete or a musician, an athlete watches the game film, a musician watches the game film, a performer has to watch the game film. The average person in business almost never watches the game film. What are they looking for when they're watching the playback? Oh, all kinds of stuff, right? So your posture, your tonality, your eye contact, your pace. I mean, you know, there's a number of things that we sort of grade and look out for. Listeners need to know this. Carrie's a champion today. Not feeling well, but still braving it and uh, making this a priority. So forgot to mute on that one. But yeah, okay. <laughs> continue, good. continue. All right, I'll tell you a fun story. This is a, this is a fun one. So we work with a a bunch of coaches and athletes, and this is a top priority: is is awareness, emotional intelligence, and then specifically tie that to communication. So this coach comes to us to say, hey, I really want to work on my communication. I want to be a more effective communicator. Now, full disclosure, he's already a pretty gifted communicator. He's kind of a energetic guy. He's great charisma and charm. But he says, I want to go to the next level. Okay, great. By the way, it's not that we have all the answers. We just have some systems and processes in place to help people do that. And so he starts sending us communication and, um, you know, we're giving him some feedback. And then he gives this interview that airs on national television. So a few million people see it. 
and he wants us to to look at it. And this is the early stages of our relationship. So, so I said, yeah, I'll, I'll check that out, take a look at it. It was a four minute and 50 second interview. And we graded that and then we gave him the feedback and um, started with the good stuff. You know, here's the things that went well, but I said, here's the things that we caught or need to change slash work on. I said, do you know that you have a tick when you talk? He says, what do you mean? And I said, well, it's something that you do repeatedly. We all have this, by the way. I have one too. There's something that we do or say. That, Mine is, mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> right. Mine is right. There it goes. See? Um, so there's something we do that's a little bit distracting. And if we want to be elite in our communication skills, then we have to focus on those things and, and, and work on them because you can't fix what you're unwilling to acknowledge. I said, do you have any idea what your tick is? He says, I really don't. I said, well, you say the words, you know, over and over again. It's like a filler statement, you know? And we did this, you know, and then we did that, you know, and then we won the game, you know? He says, yeah, I guess I do say that. I said, well, I'm just, just out of curiosity, how many times do you think you said that in this four minute, 50 second interview? He says, uh, I don't know, what did I say it a dozen times? I said, coach, what if I told you you said it 111 times in a four minute, 50 second interview. And he says, no way, that can't be true. And I said, don't worry, there's only a few million people that saw it. Um, But the reality is he was saying that, Carrie, in every single interview, repeatedly over and over and over again. So that's an example of a very gifted communicator has a small thing that he's unaware of. And until he watches the game film and has somebody else speak into that, he's not able to fix it because we're unable to fix what we're unwilling to acknowledge. So, so that, those are, those are little things that we pay attention to. And, um, you know, we have some fun with that, but again, I, I've got a bunch of stuff I need to fix myself. You know, there are so many communicators, Jordan, who probably would watch that and have no idea it was 111 times. Do you recommend a third party watches it with them. Uh, and I'll, I'll just be totally transparent. One of the most painful things I do is listen back or watch back to my keynotes or my sermons. And to do that with other people watching is sometimes humiliating. It is so difficult and yet so important. And I think it's like a lot of things in life, Carrie, that are worth doing. They're hard. No. And um, so, yeah, we, we recommend you, you have three people give you feedback and then we give people feedback. So that's four sets of eyes and ears that will review the communication. And we want these to be different types of people. In other words, I don't want, if, I, if I'm working with a pastor, I don't want the pastor to send that communication to four other pastors. Okay. Send it to um, somebody who's younger. Send, her, send it to an elder in the church. Um, send it to an entrepreneur. I mean, in other words, have people listen and and review with a different set of eyes and a different set of ears because they're going to hear it and see it in a different way. So, but that third party piece is critically important. See, that's really interesting because I want to test a theory I've had on you and 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 maybe you totally disagree. Uh, I always thought the best advice I've ever gotten in my own communication comes from fellow communicators. So if I go to a restaurant, for example, it's like, how was the pasta? I'm like, yeah, it was okay. I I can't tell you why it wasn't great. 
Or if it was great, I can't tell you why it was great because I'm not really, I can tell you why barbecue was good. I mean, you get me a brisket, I will be able to tell you why it was moist, what was excellent, what was missing, whether it was the round or the flat or the charcoal or the smoke level or the smoke ring. I can tell you barbecue. I can't tell you pasta. Um, My wife, I'll sometimes give her a sauce and she's like, eh, not quite there. This needs honey. I'm like, it doesn't need honey. And then you put honey in it. It tastes like magic. Like she's so good at that. But it takes a chef to critique a chef. And I always think it takes a communicator to connect to... Um, critique a communicator. So sometimes when I've had other people, just random people, they'll tell me, oh, I thought it was good or it didn't really connect, but they can't tell me why. Do you find that it's other communicators who can tell you why? Or do you think that you can get valuable feedback all the way around? I'm just curious. Yeah, so we, as the team of people who's reviewing the communication, are a team of communicators. You're the experts. Okay, So naturally, they're going to get that. If they're working with us, they're getting the three or four sets of eyes and ears on that specific piece of communication. Um, I do think from a demographic standpoint, you know, like this has been a learning for me, Carrie. Um, when I speak to a crowd that is baby boomer or Gen X, I have to slow down my communication. Oh, tell me why. <laughs> if I, yeah. So I got, I got just great feedback from, um, you know, an executive leader at a major company, Fortune 100 company. It's a big event. There's 4,000 people in this room. And I spoke fast. I'm a young, energetic communicator. I mean, I just, I go really fast. And at that point in my leadership, a lot of my speaking had been with younger crowds. I would say mostly millennials, Gen Zers. Um, and, and you know this as well as anyone, communication isn't as much about what you say uh-huh. as it is what people hear. And so if we're gonna build trust we're going to build rapport. If we're going to speak in a way that lands, then I think it's incumbent upon us to say, who am I speaking to? And what is their style? And how might they want to receive this communication? It's not to say that I'm going to change who I am, change any of my principles, change any of my stories, but I might change something small, like for example, my pace. We even see this in one-on-one conversations. Um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to you and you have a really calm demeanor. You have this very inviting, welcoming demeanor. Okay. Earlier today, I was on the phone with my friend, Alan Stein. Alan Stein speaks a million miles a minute. He's incredibly energetic. He's a coach. He's, he's a fiery sports guy. Naturally, I might speak to him slightly different than I speak to you. Somebody might hear that and say, well, that's just, you're not just being yourself. No, I think that's being in tune with the people you're speaking to. I think that's the art of being an effective communicator. I'd love for you to speak into that. This is good dialogue. Yeah, no, I'm curious about that. I mean, I I normally, I'm I'm always amazed. I listen to my podcast at 1.5 speed. And sometimes with my own show, I'll slow it down to one. And I'm like, man, I'm really slow. But what I find is that if I slow down and I take my time when I'm podcasting, people tell me things they don't tell anybody else. That's why I do it. Yeah. It's probably the slowest form of communication I do, and it's long form. So that's my contribution. Any other differences between the generations, Jordan? I think there's a bunch of them. Um, you know, as, as it relates to communication and a whole yeah, bunch as it relates of other to communications. Factors. As it relates yeah. to communication, here's what I'd say for leaders listening, you know. Um, and, and, and by the way, go check out Tim Elmore, who's, I think, a mutual mm-hmm. friend of ours. 
Jason Dorsey's another one is a generational expert. Um, so go check those guys out. But here, here's what I think is a, a major difference when it comes to communication. The Gen Zers, so 29 years and younger right now, grew up in a world of instant communication. Yep. Direct messages, text messages. Um, I didn't grow up in quite that world. I'm 35 years old, so I identify as a millennial. I got my first cell phone as a sophomore in high school. Um, so I didn't quite grow up that way. But then a Gen Xer definitely did not grow up that way. So a Gen Xer is going to come to that person and connect with them on a Monday morning, maybe. And, hey, I, I communicated with you. And then think it's okay to check back in the following Monday if this person is a direct report. Right. And to that Gen Zer, that Gen Xer is dead. Yeah. They're like yeah. totally dead to them. They're like, I, I think they left. I don't even know where they're at. I think they're, I, I don't even know that they exist anymore. And then the Gen Xers thinking, but wait a minute. Uh, I just talked to you last Monday. What's the big deal? So there's some major differences. And one of them is frequency of communication. So if we're leading younger people, we have to have far more touch points, shorter meetings. Attention span is way shorter. Shorter meetings, more touch points. Um, I think that's a, a major one uh, in dealing with younger people specifically. It's interesting. I know you're uh, a listener to this podcast. This episode isn't out, but Erwin McManus uh, will be by the time this airs. Talked about fast learning with Gen Z that mm. he has to change his communication style. I think he might be a younger boomer. I'm not sure. Could be Gen X, but he's basically saying, yeah, I got to change my communication style because they learn so quickly. I can move on faster. Mm. Really good point. Yeah. And Tim Elmore was on this show talking about all the generational differences, but when it comes to communication, what else are you noticing? So slower cadence with Gen X and boomers, um, more frequent communication with younger leaders. What else do you see as uh, communication tricks between the generations? Uh, I would say questions and brevity. Mm. You know, say I more think, about each. Yeah, I think um, maybe a, a Gen Xer is okay with longer form communication. Yeah. And a Gen Zer wants you to get to the point. You know, again, move quick. I got it. Let's move on. You know? In this um, video, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. yeah. <laughs> in this well, video, I will move 47 seconds yes, later. You're yes, done. yes. And yeah. I'll just I'll just say this this way, Carrie, having listened to thousands of, of pieces of communication, as part of what we do for a living, is review communication. Uh -huh. Mostly from salespeople and people who orate publicly. But um, I don't know that I've ever told someone to speak longer. Like go longer. <laughs> and conversely hundreds of times. In fact, probably a majority of the time. It's, you have to be more concise. You have to go yeah. shorter. You have to get to the point. You have to say it in fewer words. So I think brevity is key. And then questions, the power of a question. You know, Dale Carnegie said a person's favorite sound is their own name. Their favorite topic is themselves. Um, leadership has far more to do with asking the right questions than it does giving the right answers. And I think people who ask really great questions are some of the best communicators on the planet. And by the way, you are one of those people. You're a phenomenal communicator and you're a phenomenal question asker. And you have this way of keeping the attention and focus on other people. And it's part of what makes you so great at what you do. So you can just receive that 
Uh, that's true of carrying Well, thank you. You know, it's interesting. We took a quick break because of my uh, cough attack and this cold that won't go away. And you said, no, it's okay. We can edit that stuff out. And I said, yeah, but if I'm always on the verge of coughing, I can't focus on what you're saying. And if I can't focus on what you're saying, I'm not going to do a good job in the interview. I'm not going to do my part because it doesn't really matter what the question is that I sent you yesterday or the day before. What really matters is what's happening in the moment, my ability to track with it. Like Mm -hmm. all this stuff about generational differences in public speaking wasn't in the script. There's no script, but it wasn't in the questions that I sent you ahead of time, but it was really interesting to me. And so I want to hopefully not cough much more and focus in on that, but I appreciate that. Um, Can you teach a Gen Xer or baby boomer new tricks? Can you change, can can the leopard change its spots? Can we learn to get shorter, faster, more interesting? Or do you think that Gen Z and younger millennials are just kind of going, yeah, I don't want to listen to boomer and Gen X preachers anymore. Like what, what do you make of that or communicators? Yeah, of course. I, I, yeah, of course we can, you know, of course we can. I think it takes greater intentionality. Sure. Um, I have to believe that about the people we work with, or I couldn't say yes to working with them. So I have to start with this basic premise that this person can change. This person can morph. We can teach them new things. Um, I do think it starts with an open mind. And again, a whole lot of awareness. So if we're going to move them down a path, my, my favorite person, my favorite person is a person with an open mind. You know, and um, John Wooden has that famous quote, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. Yeah. And I just love that. And Carrie, you're one of those people, you just, you have an open mind in light of all of your success, in light of all that you've learned, you have this beautiful way of taking in new things and asking more questions and staying curious. And some of that's the paradox of education, right? The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah, I spent 11 years in university and basically learned nothing. Well, that's not true, <laughs> but you, you realize what you don't know, right? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. that, well, that's right. So to answer your question, yes, I think people can change. I think, um, you know, there needs to be more conversation and greater intentionality. And I think the experts, I think the Tim Elmores and the Jason Dorseys would yeah. support that. So let's talk about um, short for form versus long form. I agree the average book should be shorter not longer. I read a lot of books for this job. I leave a, read a lot of books just for life. Will Gadara's Unreasonable Hospitality, who was my other interview today, that was one of the few books in the last five years that I was like, oh, that could have been longer. Very, very rare um, that I, I run into that. David McCullough's history books, sometimes I wish were longer. His book on the Wright Brothers, Doris Kieran's Goodwin, her book of um, Team of Rivals, I wish was longer. But that, that's very few. Most books could be shorter. I think most sermons could be shorter. And yet, long form has a place. I mean, if you look at HBO and the number of documentaries, miniseries, yep. series that are going on, where, like, there are leaders who, who are saying, okay, I've learned how to do the 47-second reel. I've figured out how to do shorts. I've figured out how to do vertical video. Where does my longer content go for the next generation? How would you answer that? That's a really great question. And I I think I would answer it this way, not that I have all of the answers. I think if you are engaging with somebody in a deeper way, like, so for me, in my context, uh, for me, it would fit into like a workshop or a full day training. I mean, there's 
there's far more time allotted. I think what we, here's where we struggle. This is where I struggle. And this is where, this is where people struggle. When we violate the expectation of time, it changes the way that people receive communication. Okay. Say more about that. I want to hear about this. What is the expectation of time? So if I have a, if I have a workshop, I've got a group of people who are coming ready to receive and expect long form communication. Now it might happen in a nuanced way over the course of a day, kind of some back and forth and some different exercises, but they are prepared for a long form communication type of scenario. If conversely, there is a TED talk scenario, there are, there are a series of speakers at an event and the speaker chooses to violate the audience's expectation. The talk could actually be an A plus, but if the talk was supposed to be 20 minutes and it just went 40 and it's cutting into lunch and people are hungry and they're there really to network and hang out with each other, the audience, the the perception is actually that the talk is a lesser talk because the person communicated violated their expectation of time. Is this gut or do you have data? Because you're I do you're not have data. I wish I did. I wish okay, I had this big okay. research. I, yeah, I agree I with you a hundred percent. Andy Stanley years ago said we should set time expectations for church services. So he would typically say, and I, I did this for years too, you'll be here for about an hour or an hour and five minutes. Uh when I go to a play like, you know, on Broadway or downtown Toronto or something, I want to know when am I going to be out of here? I want to know. And if it's like short, like if it goes a minute longer, I get upset. I get irritated. Speakers who go too long drive me crazy, although I have been guilty of said crime. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, at one of the conferences I host in Atlanta, Rethink Leadership, we put the speaker's clock on public display. So it's a form of shaming. If, if the guest goes too long, if we give you 18 minutes, the whole audience knows if you went too long. Like we, we shame you into staying on track. What, what is underneath that? I, I agree with you. So sorry, that's a little bit of my pet. Yeah, belief, that's but so tell me good. More. That's so good. So here's what I think it is. It's, it, for me anyway, I think I have to remember as a communicator, I am not at the center of my audience's world. I am not. Yeah. And I think a lot of times as communicators, we think that we are. Well, they came to my event. Well, they came to my church. They came to my thing. They're at my speaking engagement. Um, Well, okay, but that person also has a significant other or a spouse that they're trying to get home to. Or a kid who's got a fever. Mm -hmm. A kid who has a fever, an issue or a fire they're trying to put out at work, an email inbox that's starting to fill up, text messages that are coming in on their phone a lingering health issue that they're concerned and worried about. So they're dealing, your audience is dealing with all of this other stuff that is competing for time and attention. And if we start to factor all that in, then then I think we have a propensity to say, I need to give this person back some time because I'm not at the center of their universe and they have other things that they want to do. I think when we start to go long and violate expectation, we, we think maybe too highly of ourselves or assume that we are at the center of their universe and we simply are not. Have you had any success coaching communicators to go shorter? Because generally what I find is that most people who go too long think, well, other people have to go shorter, but I can justify it. Any thoughts on that? All right, this is going to sound cynical. That's okay. I believe this to be true 
that each one of us overestimates how good we are here, here. at the art of communication. Yep. Myself included. Yep. Because we communicate how we want to communicate, right? I mean, that we're so used to us and the rest of the world doesn't necessarily communicate like us. And so I think I overvalue and I overestimate. And when I overvalue and overestimate something, I'm likely to take advantage of it. And me going long is a form of overestimating, overvaluing, and taking advantage of somebody else's time. So how do you self-discipline to make sure that you come at or under the time allotted when you speak publicly? Well, part of this is a little bit of experience, I suppose, Carrie, and you can relate to this as somebody who's been speaking for years and years. You know, over time, I think you develop a bit of a of an internal clock. Oh, it's but, still a battle for me, man. It, but it is I still can a go battle. Long every time, every it, time, it, it is still a battle. Um, this is how I've kind of worked through it over the years. When I prepare to speak, whether it's a workshop, a keynote speech, um, speaking to a team, a church. Uh, I, I almost always have rehearsed that and I've, and I've timed it. Um, and if I'm over, I immediately start to subtract and think through, okay, how can I reduce and how can I be a bit more concise? I had a mentor. He said, I'm going to give you one. It is a great orator, somebody I really respected. I said, I'm, I'm going to give you one piece of advice as you enter into the space of public speaking. This is when I was kind of getting my start. He said, here's the one rule. Do not go long. And I've just never forgotten that. And so that stuck with me in my preparation that um, if that's something I need to really look out for, then I have to time and be really conscientious of, of timing in my, in my preparation. That's good. Who's more forgiving, corporate audiences or church audiences as, <laughs> for speakers? Like who's the more forgiving audience? Yeah, woof. Well, you'd be able to speak to this in a, in a you know, as a pastor. Uh, better than me. I, I, I have to imagine, I've said this to many pastors, that it's more difficult. Now, I've never been a pastor, full disclosure. Yeah, yeah. It is far more difficult to speak as a pastor than it is to speak as an orator at corporate events for a number of reasons. Number one is I can say the same thing repeatedly to a bunch of different audiences. Fair. Nobody knows. If you're pastoring a church, your congregation is getting you over and over and over again. So mm -hmm. they've heard your quip. They've heard, your, 25 joke, they've heard years. your story. They've heard your, yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> like here goes Carrie again, right? And even though you're a really gifted communicator, people get used to you. So well, I think I, it's, one of the reasons I don't communicate regularly is after 25 years, I'm like, I think I've cycled through a lot of my ideas, a lot of my angles, a lot of my stories. And I'd prefer to be the guest at this point who comes in once or twice a year and delivers something fresh and then moves on. Mm. And mm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, Rick Warren did it for 40 years at Saddleback and others have done it for a long, long time. But uh, I just I just found, now leadership, I got an endless tank. I have a theory for you because I've done corporate events. I spoke at South by Southwest, which was not a Christian audience and other places. I find that pastors often have a communication skill level that corporate leaders don't. The average mm. CEO, CFO, CTO, CMO is not naturally a good communicator unless they've gotten coaching. So you have an inherent advantage. On the other hand, you can't be undisciplined because a business audience really demands data, 
points, mm. takeaways, value, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm. Yeah. So and in one way, a church audience is easier, I think, than a business audience because you have a, a built-in advantage being a decent communicator, probably because you, you have so many reps mm. as a preacher, but the standard is much higher. I, that, that is, I would agree with all of what you just mentioned. Oh, do, do you? Okay. I, do, I, do, I disagree. I do, I do agree with that. Um, I would say to that end though, back to the, which audience is most forgiving. I had to learn this when I first started speaking in the church. And today I'll speak, I don't know, I'll speak in the church maybe a dozen times a year, just to different groups or, you know, I'm not speaking a Sunday sermon, right. But I might go speak to a men's group or a youth group from time to time. Um, and when I first started speaking in the church, I had a mentor tell me, you need to remember that when you're speaking in the church um, or you're speaking from God's word, you're coming under a different authority. Yes. Yeah. And 100%. that requires a different posture. And that was an adjustment for me because again, in the corporate space, I can be big energy out front, excited to be here. How you doing? You know, that doesn't work in church world. And so there's a humility, I believe, required in the church world. And you're, you're, you're coming under a different authority. And I think if you're going to teach from God's word, there's just a completely different posture. Um, that, was a, that was a major adjustment for me. Um, Do you think, this is a loaded question, so it's not even really a question, but... Um, do you think that if you bring that posture of humility into the business space, that that is a very well-received posture? It totally is. It and is. it's even more powerful. Um, so I'll, let me, I'll, just, I'll just tell you how I, typically when I speak, I'm sharing the story of, not always, it depends on the audience and the specific keynote that I'm giving. But oftentimes I do share my story of, you know, uh, redemption and destruction and, you know, I, this major fall from grace. And we speak often about the power of vulnerability and authenticity. Yeah. And you wouldn't believe how many people have said to me at the end of a keynote, Carrie, I get this time and time and time and time again, somebody will say, well, I kind of liked you or I kind of didn't like you. Like I, I wasn't really sure of you until you shared that story at the end. Yeah. And you shared that story and that just, that resonated with me. I connected with that. And the reason it connects and the reason that it resonates is every person has been through hard stuff. Maybe not the type of brokenness that I've been through or, you know, everybody's different, but, but they, they can connect with that. Um, Craig says it this way, people can be impressed with your strengths. They connect with you through your weakness. And we have to make a choice, okay, are we going to be impressive or are we going to be impactful? Would you ever lead with that story? I thought about that, you know, and I, and I have a few times if it's shorter form communication and maybe I need to, I'll accept no, that. As I usually lead with something that, that um, doesn't paint me in a flattering light. Yeah, there's, a, there's maybe some real power immediate to that. Bond. They need to know you're competent, that you're not an idiot. Right. Like, oh, this guy and let the bio or the introduction do that. But then when you come up and just share out of humanity, I think Brene Brown changed the game on that years ago. She totally did. I love yeah. Brene's message and content. Yeah. She's yeah. I Brene's love talking great. about communication. Okay. Well, um, you're also a podcaster. 
And you've got you've got some really um, fairly big name Christian guests on your podcast. I, I would love to know because I get this question all the time: what your guest strategy is for um, getting guests for your podcast? Well, get some really good friends. Um, you know, like the Carrie Newhoffs and the David Nurses and the Brad Lominicks. And, you know, we we truly, we've been so blessed, Carrie, just to have friends. It was Lominick that connected us. Lominick connected us. Yeah. yeah. Brad, Brad is like a secret weapon um, <laughs> in so many ways. He's just, he's the most abundant, caring, generous person, constantly connecting. Um, so we've been really blessed to, to, you know, just get connected. But I would also say this, that we've worked really hard at connecting, you know, like I'm already thinking literally in my subconscious as we're having this conversation, Carrie, I'm thinking about people that I need to connect you with um, for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, I believe that connected people are connecting people and connecting people are connected people. So if you want to have certain guests on your podcast, one of the things I've learned is just be a master connector. Like, be generous, be giving, connect people with intentionality, but it doesn't have to be for a specific reason. In other words, I could say, Carrie, you ought to connect with this person. Maybe you'll do a podcast. Maybe you'll collaborate on an event. I have no idea. What I do know is you share the same spirit. You're immensely talented. You're both really well connected and you just need to spend some time together. And um, that has worked really well. So if you're asking for my strategy, um, yeah, I am because there's there's a lot of young leaders listening. Like I know Lominick knows a million people, but he doesn't always connect everybody. So how did that yeah, connection yeah. happen? So here's what I'd say. Okay, let's get practical. If you're a yeah. young leader listening and you would like to have more great guests on your podcast, here's what I would do. I would figure out who, like who are the people that you really want to get, um, and then how do you how do you serve those people, um, or how do you serve the people that they care about. Uh, Mark Cole said this on our podcast about John Maxwell. I was asking him about his run with John over the last 25 years. Mark Cole is the CEO of Maxwell Leadership. So I'll give Mark credit. This is beautiful. He said, um, if you really want to grow in your influence, find out what the leader's agenda is and make it your agenda for a season. Um, I would add to that, find out what the leader's issue is and make it your issue for a season. So I'll just tell you, full disclosure, there's some leaders we're working with. John Gordon is one of them. And John knows. I said, John, I want to learn from you. I want to grow with you. I'm going to make John's agenda my agenda for a season. I respect John. I want to learn from John. Brad Lominick is is another one. I'm going to make Brad's agenda my agenda. Uh, Patrick Lanchoni is another one. And I've I've been very upfront with with those guys. I'm going to make your agenda my agenda for a season. Now, if I say that... um, then I really have to serve. It can't be, I'm serving so that I get this in return. It just means the causes, the things that are going on in their world, I got to get behind them. I got to care about them. And I got to participate. I have to be an active participant in in those things. And I've just learned, um, you know, like I'll I'll give you an example. Um, This is a a blessing that's come out of service. Uh, John and I've done some events together. So John calls and says, Hey, I'm doing this event. Maxwell? John Gordon. Sorry. John Gordon. John Gordon. I'll, I'll tell you two, two examples of this. Um, John Gordon reaches out, says, Hey, I'm doing this event with Pat Lynchoni. Would you like to host, produce, and MC? I said, Sure. Uh, again, happens through service. 
Um, there's now another event planned with Ed Milet and another event planned, I think with Irwin. And again, I'll play the same role in those events. Um, that does not happen if there hasn't been value added to John, if I haven't gotten behind some of the things that John cares about. Um, but I think because of that, I think John said, you know, I appreciate Jordan's intentions and I know that he's attempting to add value. And so those things will come back around to you. But, but I've also been burnt by that. I've also had leaders where, gosh, I've served and served and served and that doesn't come back around and that's fine. Another example, we're taking um, 20 leaders to Orlando, Florida next month to hang out with John Maxwell, Sean McDermott for 24 hours. So John wants to kind of pour into the next generation of leaders. I've tried to do some things with Maxwell leadership to get behind some of the things that they care about. And now it's like God's opening doors really wide to spend more time with John and his team. And it doesn't even make sense. The point is this, add value, serve, connect, be way more generous than you think you should. And you will wake up in a world where you've got a great network with a bunch of friends and a lot of genuine relationships. Um, I have found that so many people want to take instead of give. And so they'll drop into people's DMs. Hey, would you be on my podcast? Would you? And I'm not that, that, it's not that that doesn't work. The probability of you developing a really meaningful relationship, if that's your style, I think is pretty low. So I'd ask yourself the question, do you want a podcast guest or do you want a relationship? I want both. I want a podcast guest, but I want a relationship. You know, like I want to know how do I serve Carrie Newhoff? How can I add value to Carrie? How can I connect Carrie? How can I get behind some of the things that Carrie cares about and add some gas to that, to that fire? Um, because that's where your influence really starts to expand and grow. That's really great advice. And sometimes I think that happens one-on-one. Um, -on -one. And sometimes I think like people now want to be known for being known. But uh, I had, we mentioned him a few times on the show, Craig Grishel back on my podcast. And one of the things he said, and he's told me this, but he, he said it publicly now, is he discovered me not because somebody introduced us, but because I started writing blogging 10 years ago. And every time he Googled something, he found me. And then eventually he's like, how come this guy keeps showing up? And then eventually we had mutual friends who connected us and, you know, now we have a friendship. But that was, that was adding value while having no idea who was reading or whether mm. anybody was reading or any of that stuff. So I, I just love your answer to that. And I think even if you don't have those kinds of direct relationships, like just really add value to the people who are following you and don't worry about the fact that somebody who... You know, you have nobody who has a New York Times bestselling book following you at this time. Because you never know. If you add enough value to some yeah. people, eventually, you know, it, it comes around. I don't know. I don't know what that is, but it, it, I, I really appreciate your advice on that. It, it totally does. And, and I would say this too, because there's somebody listening thinking, well, I don't have a podcast. I don't have the influence yet. I don't have the resources. There are little things like um, find out who is uh, got a book coming out. You know, maybe there's some authors that you respect. Find out if they're putting out a book, um, reach out to them and don't say, hey, would you be on my podcast? Would you like to talk about your new book? Say, hey, I would love to help you promote and distribute your new book. And I'll do whatever you want me to do. Um, I will um, make phone calls. I'll send emails. I'll put stuff on social media. I'll have you on, if you do have a podcast, I'll have you on my podcast. Um, heck, I'll buy a bunch of books and give them to my friends. Like, 
how, how could, is there anything I could help, um, help with in getting your book out into the world? And they may or may not have an answer for you, but they might say, actually, I'm doing this event. If you'd like to volunteer at this event and come hang out and hand out books, that'd be great. Well, okay. Now you just found a way to add value. You put yourself in close proximity to the leader and you have a chance to develop the relationship. So a lot of this stuff isn't rocket science, but um, it starts with a heart to care and adding value to others. That's so good. Hey, anything else you want to share, Jordan, before we wrap up today? Yeah, I'll just say this to you, Carrie. I, I'd love to encourage you before we sign off. I um, I respect you so much and I've really enjoyed following you and your work. And I would say there's there's two things that I want to encourage you in. And there's, and there's two things that I think you model really, really well for the world around you and for the people listening. Um, one is authenticity. I think you have managed to remain authentic as you influence others. Um, you wear your faith on your sleeve. I think you have a really authentic style. I think when people connect with Carrie, they feel like they're getting the real Carrie. I think what you see is what you get. And I think you've worked hard to stay true to who you are. And Thank you. in a world that can be so fake and artificial, I think authenticity wins now more than ever before. And so that's your humility. It's your vulnerability. It's your willingness to admit fault and mistakes. And I've heard you talk about burnout and your story. And so all of that is just so incredibly attractive. Um, the other thing I would say though, that really, I think, uh, I think you're world-class at is asking questions. I think you are curious. I think you're a lifelong learner. I think you, you know how to make it about others and make somebody feel really special. My wife said this to me yesterday. She said, you know, Carrie might've had the most prepared um, approach to a podcast that, you know, that we've seen and seen a lot. And uh, the questions weren't like scripted leadership questions. Like the questions were detailed questions about my life. And there's no way you come up with this list of 13 or 14 questions that are detailed about my life. If you and your team hadn't really done your research and your homework, and if you didn't have a really sincere, genuine curiosity and having this conversation. So just want to encourage you in that. I think you modeled well, those you. two things really well. I, I really appreciate that. And today you even got the uh, hacking attack cough version of Carrie. <laughs> so that's about as authentic as it gets. Jordan, I love to see uh, the difference between 35 and 27 in your life. I love to see the influence God has given you and you gave young leaders some and older leaders some incredible advice and made me think about communication and fresh, fresh ways. And there were, there were some really delightful surprises in the interview today. So thank you so much for being on. Hey, people are going to want to follow you online. Where's the easiest place to do that these days? Yeah. Um, pretty active on social media. So Instagram, uh, Jordan M Montgomery, uh, pretty active on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, yeah. Send us a message if we can add value or be helpful. Yeah. Mostly um, social. Yeah. Send a message on social. And then our website is montgomerycompanies.com. So companies is plural, uh, montgomerycompanies.com. And again, if we can add value, be of service, um, reach out, let us know. Jordan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Carrie. You're a blessing. Be well. 
Well, I love that conversation, particularly as it pertains to younger leaders. So uh, I have thought a lot about being overexposed and underdeveloped. And uh, sometimes when I get asked, like, Carrie, how do you feel about, you know, what you're doing at this point? I'm like, you know what? I don't think I could have handled it when I was younger. If I had this kind of audience and exposure and opportunities when I was in my 20s or 30s, I don't think my character was ready for it. It sort of is barely now, you know what I mean? Uh, but you got to make sure your platform doesn't outgrow your character. And if it does, just know, hey, I'm here for you. That's one of the reasons we do this. That's why we have a great thing going over at the Art of Leadership Academy. We have a ton of young leaders over there that we're supporting and encouraging. We want to help you grow as a leader, thrive in life and leadership. So uh, that's just a word to all of our young listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I really hope that this stuff helps you. If you want more, we have transcripts. We have links to everything we talked about in the show notes. And you can find that at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 568. And it's free. Why is it free? Because of our amazing partners. Check out what Overflow has done. They now offer not just stock and crypto, but cash processing. So you can take cash donations, lowest fees in the industry. Go to overflow.co slash carry. That's overflow.co slash carry. And if you're like most leaders, you need more volunteers. You got to onboard them right. Check out our friends over at servehq.church. They will help you get moving in a much more positive direction. All the church leaders I talked to this year are struggling with volunteers. Go to servehq.church for more. Well, we got a lot of great episodes coming up. I'm so excited to have Seth Godin come back to the show. We've also got uh, Sherelle Jackson, Caitlin Beatty, Chuck DeGroat. Paula Ferris, who else? John Acuff, Richard Foster, very excited for that. Kevin Kelly, and next episode, J.D. Greer. Here is an excerpt. We all know how to teach this to our people regarding uh-huh. money. No <laughs> pastor ever says, right? Like, hey, if you got excess money sitting around uh-huh. in your bank account, you should give that away. You, know, you give God your first and your best, and then, and then what you find, and this is true, is he really does multiply it. He multiplies your provisions back to you. Um, why would we say that with our money and not do that with our, our leadership? We give to God the first and the best of our leadership. And I, I'm just telling you, you cannot outgive God. I feel like for every one we send out, there's three more that pop up in their place. Yeah, so we're going to talk about leading Southern Baptists, how multiplication leads to explosive growth, and the future of denominations, and a whole lot more. If you subscribe, you get that automatically. And, uh, well, uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, what's keeping you? I only listen to the podcasts I subscribe to. So if you're new, welcome. Uh, Please subscribe. And if you would be so kind, leave us a rating and review. So question for you before we wrap up now. Did you see the latest Barna data about pastor burnout? It's striking. And I featured it and a lot of other really interesting insights in my On The Rise weekly newsletter. It gets delivered for free every Friday to your inbox. And I feature the most fascinating and sometimes curious content about, well, leadership, faith, and often way out in left field. Like I'll share, you know, some of the most beautiful nature photos or uh, architectural pictures or video I found really cool. Recently shared one, every single number one song every month since 1980. I mean, just stuff that I find curious if you're interested in that kind of thing. And also uh, recently released uh, a little piece on the Hemingway effect, why less is more in communication. So if you're like me and you have a really curious imagination and you like to learn, It's great weekend reading. You get it for free every Friday. 
and you can join over 85,000 leaders who get it. You can go to ontherisenewsletter.com to sign up for free today. That's ontherisenewsletter.com. Sign up for free today. There's also some perks that you can get when you sign up, so check it out. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I hope our time together today has helped you maybe identify and break the next growth barrier you're facing. 